get your attention. Well, ever heard that song, Spirit in the Sky? All right, it was played in the movie Remember the Titans back in 2000, back in, written back in the, just before 1970, all right? But such confidence, right? You hear the beat? Where's he going? When he dies. It's going up to the spirit in the sky, right? He's going to the best place. It's upbeat, he's happy, right? That's where he's going when he dies. Can you have such confidence? Can you? I mean, surely there isn't a bigger or more important question in life to ask than where do you go? What happens to you when you die? Uh, I was out with Josh Watt the other day before Easter down at Terrigal and uh, we were asking guys about what they thought about Easter and the death and resurrection of Jesus. We got talking to an English couple, a bit old enough, and I was talking to the guy, we were talking about all sorts of stuff. But I said to him, look, um, had he thought about what happens after death? He said, well, not really. He said, I don't really think you can know what happens after death. He's joked, he said, you know what, when you get there... Write me a letter and tell me what it's like. I said, well, I know you're just joking, but actually it's quite funny because Jesus tells a story just like that about a rich guy and Lazarus. And then the rich guy ends up in hell and Lazarus ends up in heaven. And the rich guy says to, to Father Abraham, he said, Abraham, can you send down Lazarus to warn my five, five, five brothers? Abraham says... Nah, they've got Moses and the prophets. They've got the Old Testament. Lazarus says, no, 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 but if somebody from the dead was to go to them, well, they'd believe him. And Abraham says, no, 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 even if someone was to rise from the dead, they wouldn't believe him. And the guy was still listening to me in Terrigal Beach, and I said, you know, the funny thing about that story is, it's Jesus who tells the story. The one who will die and rise again from the dead, and yet we still don't believe him. Now, I'm not, we talked about lots of other things. I'm not sure he fully got me because at the end of our conversation, he kind of joked, Well, when you go, go there, write me a letter, okay? But there's a point. I hope you get the point. Um, the point is, there's no lack of clarity from God. He did speak to us through Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament, and now he has spoken to us through the Son. And that's the point the Hebrews is making, isn't it? One last time, God has spoken with absolute clarity through his own Son. Right? Um, uh, It's a better word. It's a better everything, as we saw yesterday. A better sacrifice, a better temple. It's better. You see, the problem is not God's lack of clarity... The problem is we don't want to listen to him. It's a problem. It's the problem of unbelief. You see, God wants us to have a confidence of where we stand with him, a basis of our hope, a joy, a happiness, because when I die and they lay me to rest, I'm going to go to the place that's the best. I'm going to go to be with God the Father and God the Son, right? The question for us this morning is, do you have that confidence? Do you have that confidence? If you were to die today in a game of fat, just this epic thing happens out there, we don't want it, but let's just say, and you just get smashed, and the next thing you know, you're up before glory. Are you sure 
that you will spend eternity with God. Are you sure? Because God wants you to have full assurance. Look at chapter 10, verse 22. Now, assurance, just quickly, assurance is being absolutely sure, certain, completely certain, all right? Chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Draw near in full assurance of faith. That's absolute certainty, sure faith. But you say, I don't have certain faith. I mean, I don't have that much faith. I mean, some of you guys seem to have that much faith, but I don't have that much faith, not certain faith. See, it's important also that we understand what faith is. We have already said that faith is trusting God. It's trust. But you need to understand it's not the amount of trust, it's the object of trust. Some years ago, I was um, uh, canyoning with some youth group leaders in Katoomba. You know, you kind of walk into the gorge, and you know what a canyon is? You take your lilo down, and you jump on the, on the rapids, and you kind of you glide down. It's awesome. But in order to get in there, we had to cross a canyon. Huge gorge running down, scary. And the only way across was a huge log had fallen, fallen across. And so, uh, one of the guys, John... He, he was a confident fella. He literally just bounded across this log, just jumped across. Huge gorge down. If he slipped, gone. But he just bounded. Well, of course, Susie, exact opposite. She was scary, right? Scared, so she got, jumped down on her bottom, legs other side of the log, and terrified other side, inched across. Right? She inched across. And um, now the question is, what got them across? Was it the way they crossed? John bounding, Susie kind of inching. His lots of lots of faith, her kind of little faith. No, it's the log, right? It's the tree. It was the object of their faith. The tree could bear their weight easily. That's the point of faith. If the point is, what is your trust in? Your faith in? And that's the question for us. What is our trust in? Look at chapter, um, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. What's our trust in? Our confidence is by the blood of Jesus in the new and living way that's in his body. He is the object of our trust. And he can carry us easily. All right? God wants you to draw near to God with a sure trust in Jesus. Okay? But you see, you gain your assurance by being concerned. All right? It's critical for the Christian life that you gain a right concern, even a fear. Can I put it like that? Not that kind of petrified, paralyzed fear, you know, but the fear that kind of puts on your seatbelts when you're travelling in the car. A fear that means you don't relax and get comfortable and get lazy. I'm, I'm like most parents. I want my children to feel uh, safe while crossing roads, which means when they were little, I did the classic parent thing, right? And you've got to hold Dad's hand, right? And uh, they don't, there's a certain age when that's really cool because they're really little, but then there's that phase when, man, you don't want to hold Dad's hand. Hold Dad's hand, and what do you do? Look to the... Left, then the right, then the left again, okay? And, they, 
and that's the way you stay safe. You have a certain fear that that car can squash you. And, uh, that's, and that's helpful fear, a helpful concern. And the book of Hebrews is about going the distance and it wants us to get that so you make the distance, you make it to the end. Look at chapter, verse 23. Um, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, and let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. It's about holding unswervingly to the hope, about spurring one another on, encourage one another, so that you get it till till the day, the day that's approaching, which is the judgment day, the day when you will stand before the Lord of glory and give an account of your life. All right? That's That's what the aim is. And so here is the concern we need to have. The concern we need to have, look at verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. You get it? If you deliberately keep on sinning after you've come to Christ, then you reject the high priestly sacrifice of Jesus, his blood, and there's no other sacrifice left. There is only one sacrifice, one high priest, Jesus. And so you can expect, what, see what it says? You can expect judgment and a raging fire. Right? And it goes on further, it says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Right? Um, you may have heard the story, the classic story, you heard it, of the bushwalkers who are bushwalking and then caught with a massive um, bushfire front coming at them, faced with sure death, they have just passed a burnt-over area, an area where a campfire um, had obviously got, got away from the camper. Realising that, they quickly run back, place themselves in the area that's already been burnt out, such that when the huge bushfire front comes, that's, you know, 100 metres high and going for Ks, they are safe, right? Now, that is a picture of the gospel that's presented uh, all through the New Testament, but particularly here in Hebrews. This raging fire of the judgment of God is coming against um, sinful mankind. And there's only one place where you can avoid the wrath or the anger of God bearing fully down upon you. And that is where... God has already burnt out a patch. That patch is in Jesus, the high priest who would offer himself as the sacrifice, who took the wrath upon himself. Um, There and there alone is the place where God has passed over. And you stand in faith in that place, then you are safe. But if you choose to reject that place, if you deliberately keep on sinning and saying I don't want that I don't want Jesus you see what it actually says there it's like a person who knows the truth of the gospel but how much more severely does a man deserve to be punished who has trampled the son of God underfoot who was treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him that has made him holy who has insulted the spirit of grace as we said yesterday 
God worked a violent grace. He blooded himself for us. And imagine getting that, knowing fully of that, and saying, I don't care. It's as if you trample across Jesus again, like the very kind of um, passion scene again, where he was beaten and trampled. And the scene scene that's pictured there, the writer's trying to capture, it's as if you're part of that, and you're saying, I don't care. It's actually the great, I don't want it. You treat it as an unholy thing. You just, you just despise it. Uh, that is the picture. And it's actually the picture that's drawn from verse 31 there. Um, uh, for, we know, for we know him who said, "Is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people as a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. That is a picture of what actually Old Testament Israel did. God's son, the nation of Israel... In Deuteronomy 32, Moses sings a song about their rejecting of God. Basically, the pictures of God raising up Israel from a little boy, nurturing him from infancy, looking after Israel, the nation. But then as he grows into be a man, this nation, this man rejects God and says, I don't want your blessings. I don't want your grace. And God says, okay, well then you will face my judgment. Like all the nations around you, you could chase that up. That is the picture, and that's the picture that the writer of the Hebrews says. It's possible to do that, to be so blessed by God and yet to have reject God and the gospel. And as he says, it is a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. That is the concern we are to have, right? In fact, there's a number of warning passages that are in Hebrews that are just like that, and we could look at them, but we haven't got time. It raises a few questions for us, doesn't it, though, Right? What does it mean for us to deliberately keep on sinning? Aren't some of our sins all deliberate in some respects? Well, I mean, there's the idle word and there's those sort of... But sometimes we do do deliberately sin, don't we? So what does that mean? Is it possible to fall away, right? Now, what I'll do is I'm going to get a few passages. We'll read out. Who can can look up Romans 8.30? 8.30, good. Thanks, Lucy. Someone else got Philippians 1.6? Good. And John 6.39. Good. Okay. So, Romans, somebody looked at Romans 8.30. Okay. You want to read that out? Shh. Listen, Lucy's got a big voice. Oh, yep. Kind of. Okay, get the picture. The promise of God is that those he's called, there's a whole deliberate train of events that happens. God who calls, he predestined, he's elected, right? He, he, he then um, uh, chooses, he justifies them, and then he glorifies them. See the picture that's presented? If God has got you, he begins by saving you and he takes you right to the end to making you right with him, justified, and ultimately glorified to be with him in glory. See the picture of Romans 8.30? Okay, Philippians 1.6. Okay. Um, and I am sure Got the picture? He who began a good work in you, I'm sure of this, he who began a good work on you will take it to completion. If, all right? John 6. John 
Get that one? And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those that are given to me, right? But raise them up on the last day. That's Jesus speaking. I shall lose none of them of those who are given to me. Okay? So is it possible to fall away? If God's got you, um, can you kind of shake yourself off? It's like this, right? If God's got me, like, see the hands? If God's got me, is it possible that I can actually kind of, you know, get, get God to kind of let go of me? The promise seems to say, if God's got me, nothing's going to stop me falling away from him. I will get to glory. Is it possible that I could actually reject God? How does that work? Is it possible to fall away? And then, of course, pastorally, we have, this is a close to the bone one, isn't it? See, what about those who seem to have fallen away? Can they come back? And we all know people close to us who seem to know the truth of the gospel. Can they come back? Right? All right. Now, how do we work this out? Well, the critical thing here is to understand the context, as with all reading the Bible, the context of the passage. The Hebrew Christians were in danger of falling away. Right? We've already seen that in chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, remember, we must pay more careful attention to what we've heard so that we don't drift away. Or verse 3, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? As we saw, they're in the danger of position of, of apathy coming upon them through slowly drifting away. Um, chapter 6, verse 10, um, 12, uh, we read... We do not want you to become lazy, right? Um, but to imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. Okay? So that, um, the problem with becoming confident is you can become la- um, lazy. Chapter 5, verse 11. I think you looked at this yesterday in Bible study. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. The word slow there is like slug-like. They've become couch potatoes, okay? Um, I'm sure you can kind of have that visual image of you at home sitting there. That's what they've done in their Christian life. They've become slug-like, slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. You see what's going on here? They've become tired of the word of God. They want to be spooed, fed. They're not exercising their mind, their will, their heart, and maturing. Rather, you see, they're still stuck in the elementary things of Christ and, and they're still taking milk, not heavy things. Now, there's nothing wrong with milk. But if you're 16 and you still need your mother's milk, we've got a problem, right? Very awkward, very embarrassing, and we've got a real problem. And the same in the Christian life. If, if that's, you're in great danger, and that's the Hebrews. That's the context of this book written to these people. So what then about our assurance? What are those passages, Romans 8.30, Philippians 1.6, John 6, and other passages, many others? Well, the problem is, you get those passages, and people take them too far. What they say is, once a Christian, always a Christian. You see the way it says, you're untouchable. You see? Just like that kind of picture of the, the, the grip of the hand, right? God's got you and there's nothing you can do to get out of his grip. You can just reject him, keep deliberately sinning, and it's just, you know, that's, 
once a Christian, always a Christian. It's as if, you know, you're on the top of a platform, all right, with rocks down below, you're way up in the sky, and what God has done is he plays a huge big fence around you, so no matter what you do, you couldn't throw yourself off there. You could run into that fence, bang, but you can't get through it. God's got you. Once a Christian, always a Christian. That's the danger. So how do we then explain these seeming opposites? On the one side, God promises to keep his children till the end. On the other, the elect are called and justified and will be glorified. That is, no genuine believer will fall away. How does it work? Well, um, yeah. Um, oh, sorry, and and how, do we, how does that work? When we've got these passages that say... He warns believers of the eternal destruction if they reject him. Well, the answer simply is, God keeps us not by fencing us up so we can't fall, but by making us want to be kept. Right? God holds us, okay, God holds us, and he makes us want to hold on. Now, how does he do that? Two ways, put simply. He does it internally by giving us the Holy Spirit, okay, that works in us, so that when we grieve the Holy Spirit, it kind of cries out within us, no, internally. And externally, he gives us these warning passages. Okay? So, how does a believer, how does it work? How does a believer receive these warning passages? Well, as you journey in the Christian life, you receive these warning passages just as they say. Right? You read them, you take them seriously, that if you reject God, he, you will stand eternally condemned. Okay? The, the warnings remind us that falling away from the living God has eternal consequences. They shout out to us, danger! They're the same thing as a sign on the road which says, go no further, steep cliff ahead. And any driver who wants to preserve his life takes heed of the warnings and turns around. Right? In the same way, these warning passages, they, they call out to us, danger. Don't fall away from the living God. If you deny him, he will deny you. It's precisely by taking the warning seriously that we avoid eternal destruction. You see, the label poison on the side of a bottle, basically, it seizes our attention, right? It awakens us internally, as this, you know what I mean? So that there's peril. Uh, if you go and grab that bottle with poison and you swallow it, you die, right? That's why we take special care with such a container, we put that container separate to the soft drink bottles. Got it? And the warnings in Scripture intended to cause us, arouse us from the same kind of sluggishness, propel us onward in the path of Christian faith. It's like riding a bike, okay? The passages help us keep pushing down on those pedals so we're moving forward. They provoke a healthy fear so that we're not casual and relaxed about entering the heavenly rest. Now, of course, the, um, the fear is not the same thing as a paralyzing fear, that paralyzes all activity. It's the same kind of fear that helps you put that seatbelt on when you drive, which causes us to place railings where we would fall and be deadly. Um, this is not the fear that paralyzes, but actually contributes to our confidence when driving or climbing. Similarly, hearing and obeying the warnings of Scripture does not sap us of confidence and assurance. It's actually the pathway to full assurance of faith. So how can we therefore have full assurance? Well, take heed and be concerned. What's the evidence God's got you? You take the word seriously and you're moving forward. So here's the challenge, okay? 
How do you diagnose how you're going? Are you taking the word seriously? Or are you like the Hebrews and you've grown weary, lazy, sluggish? You're still on milk, right? Well, the word to you this morning is danger, beware, okay? You don't have the assurance that you're a Christian. That's exactly right. You don't have that sure confidence you're meant to have because you are in great danger. That is the Holy Spirit saying to you, wake up, get going. So how are you going? Are you taking the word seriously? The second one is moving forward. The Christian life is like riding a bike. You've got, the question is, are you moving forward? What's your momentum like? Are you pushing down on the pedals? Um, or are you like those cyclists you kind of see in the traffic lights? You know what I mean? You kind of, you've got no momentum and you're just trying to stay upright before they kind of go, Dunk. It's possible that your Christian life could be just like that. You've got no momentum and you're not moving forward, you're not growing. You are in great danger of falling over. And that's what these passages are supposed to say. Wake up, push down the pedals, grow, move forward. Are you moving forward? All right? I'll close, I'm going to say three things. Three, I think the, he, the writer of the Hebrews is writing to different, there's different people he's writing to. He's, as he said in the Hebrews, in chapter 6, he says to some, we have more, great confidence for some of you guys. You'll be fine. But others, he's now in great danger. And I suspect I've got those kind of people in front of me now. Some people here are guilty. You know that one day you're going to stand before the terrible day of judgment where that DVD we talked about yesterday will be played where all your thoughts, your actions, everything you said will be played before a holy God who cannot stand to look upon evil. And you know what? Just the glimpse of him um, will make you head, hang your head in shame. If you've never felt guilty before, on that day you will. But it'll be too late. You'll hear the most awful words ring out in your ears when God says, depart from me, you who are condemned, into eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels. Those are the words that will ring in your ears for all eternity. Uh, and you know, as you sit here this morning, that that is the judgment that you stand to receive if you were today to die, die today. That, that's you. And I call upon you to turn, to repent, because it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The God who came himself and emptied himself and became the great high priest who would offer himself where God would forsake God and pour wrath upon the Son so that you can be forgiven. See, God has actually said, I've got the divine delete button here. I can get that DVD of yours and in one press, I can delete all that sin. All of it will be instantly gone. All 
those thoughts, all those, all gone if you trust in Jesus. And instead, all that is there will be left there is, all, is your good deeds. You'll be completely forgiven at the cost of the Son. If you've never received that forgiveness, if you've never known what it's like to have your conscience washed clean, well, you are still guilty. And I'm going to urge you this morning to respond. Not a shallow response, not a religious response. I want you to confess your sins. I want you to turn and become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and to live for him, to live a whole life where you live in obedience to him and the Spirit. Nothing less. Nothing less. But do it now and don't delay. See, if you think that you're going to have fun for the next 20 years and you can say no to God, no to God, no to God, and then all of a sudden in 20 years you'll say, oh, then I'll say yes to God. What makes you think you can harden your heart for the next 20 or however many years and then all of a sudden say yes? These, those words will be your eternal judgment. Don't delay. Take action today. There's a second group here. I want to speak to those who would call themselves Christians but they've deliberately adopted a sinful lifestyle, right? You guys are deliberately sinning, right? You're a Christian in name only. You're walking in darkness. You're loveless. Your love has grown cold and the things of God seem dim and uninteresting. Well, today you need to confess your sins. Now, I believe most of you guys here are actually um, sons and daughters of God. You're walking in the light. You long to serve him with all your heart. And you sin, um, but you long to serve him, right? Your desire is to serve God. I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking about those guys who are deliberately keeping on sinning, whose love has grown cold. They've lost that desire, whose sin, they don't, it doesn't even prick their conscience anymore. They don't care anymore. Friends, your fate could be even worse than the first people. And I call upon you to confess your sins and to come back to God. And the God of grace and mercy will restore you and cleanse you and make you again a son, a daughter of God. Right? And everyone here this morning, without exception, has that offer made to them. Right? They have that offer. There's an opportunity to know God and the forgiveness and life forever in him. Right? There's a third category. And I've wrestled whether I should do this because it's risky, but I'm going to try. You guys are the guys who really love the Lord Jesus. And how do you think about these kind of a message like this? Here's the seed, because the Christian life is meant to be a confident life. A confident life. So here's the risk. Martin Luther said, for you, the word is sin boldly. Hear that? Sin boldly. Let me explain. It needs to be explained. See, Luther recognised as you seek to live the radical Christian life, a life that takes risks for, for Christ, you face choices. Right? And even though you fight sin in your life, in each of those choices you know there'll be sin there. Sin will still be there because we are always mixed, a bit of um, always pure but always a bit of sin. We're never 100% sure. So say, as an illustration, even as I seek to speak this week, humbly teach you the word, 
there's always my ego there even in the slightest bit you see there's still some sin there and so Luther says no 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 because the Christian life is a confident life that is lived under the umbrella of God's grace where we are forgiven once for all the one sacrifice is done we live by grace and so friends sin boldly live a bold Christian life and I recognise many of you are like that recognise that as you make decisions as you live radical life there will always be some sin there and keep fighting it but the word to you today is keep going push forward keep the momentum don't stop that's no you have full assurance of faith you will be there in glory because you will be justified because and glorified because that's the promise all right and now you the tricky thing is you need to work out who you are with the harris household my household had a very scary day the other day it was a scary night a somber night because that day uh, my wife Karina and the two boys were going to this uh, Gosford pool and um, Karina was um, with Simeon and walking across the pedestrian crossing but as she as she crossed she just realised Josiah was just lagging she looked behind and in that moment a pea plater has come flying through the pedestrian crossing music blaring with no idea and Josiah was behind her. Fortunately, Josiah, dawdling, has just before he stepped out upon the road, he's paused. And the car, by a few millimetres, went straight in front of him. Now the car who saw it just stopped. Couldn't believe that a boy was almost smashed to smithereens. And I almost lost my son. What saved him? The grace of God, firstly. But secondly, because we taught him, if you want to be safe on the road, you need to be concerned. You need to listen to warnings, which means you're careful. And so for that very moment, he paused. And that pause saved his life. The writer of the Hebrews is giving us a warning. And if you want to be safe, if you want to know for sure, then you heed the warnings. And you will keep pushing forward and, and live a f in full assurance of faith. That is how we keep ourselves safe, by being concerned and having a godly fear. Right? How about I close in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word to us we thank you that you keep us by faith that it's you who works in our life to keep us but you do not keep us like robots but rather you work with us and you warn us like children and you move in us by your holy spirit so as to keep us till the end and father i pray for the different people that will be here some who know that they are guilty and some who the next few days will need to, if they wish to be safe, to bow the knee and to come and turn and put their trust in you, to say that they are sorry and that they need to stand by faith in Jesus, to trust in him. Father, I pray that those who need to do that would do that today or tomorrow, but they would not delay. 
pray for those who have deliberately kept on sinning, have deliberately chosen a sinful lifestyle, who are in, by Christian in name only. And I pray they too would repent, that they would turn, that they would wake up from their lethargy and sluggishness and come alive to you. And I pray that by the Spirit you'd do that. And Father, I pray lastly for my brothers and sisters here who are pushing on in the Christian life. Father, keep strengthening them that they would keep doing just that and that we would continue to live a life that honours the Lord Jesus who once for all has died for us. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.